Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, please turn back to Exodus 16, uh, which is the passage we're going to be looking at this evening. I wonder if you remember, those of you who are old enough, a film from the early 1990s. There was a film called Groundhog Day, which uh, featured a, an actor called Bill Murray. He was a weather reporter. And uh, the plot of the film is basically that he gets trapped in a day. He gets trapped in February the 2nd of the particular year that he's in. And uh, he wakes up in the morning, says February 2nd on his calendar. Uh, a particular song is playing on the radio. He goes through the day. He goes to bed at night, wakes up the next morning, and it's still February the 2nd. And the same music's playing on the radio. And he goes through the, a very similar routine to the previous day. This keeps on happening, but he, over time he experiments and he tries to do different things during the day and he finds out that actually uh, whatever he does, whether good or bad, has no consequences. He still wakes up the, uh, in, morning, in bed the next morning and it's still February the 2nd and the same music is playing. He's trapped in this loop that he can't escape from. Well, um, the, the, these middle chapters of Exodus are a little bit like that for the Israelites. They're trapped in this loop of behavior that they don't seem to be able to get out of. And uh, we see the, the, the three chapters, 15, 16, and 17, a very similar pattern is taking place where the Israelites complain to God, uh, and then God provides for them. Uh, and then a bit more time passes, and they complain again, uh, and God provides for them again. And then a bit more time passes, and they complain again. Uh, they're trapped in this loop, and if you follow the story further for the Israelites, you see that uh, the pattern goes on. They disobey God. God forgives them. They disobey God. God forgives them again. They're, they're trapped in a loop. Uh, but the difference to the film that we heard about is that for the Israelites, there definitely were consequences of those actions, very far-reaching and long-lasting consequences, even ones that were eternal. And for us reading this uh, history, this passage, uh, it's frustrating, isn't it? You kind of think, you know, why can't the Israelites learn? Uh, but these things are recorded in the Bible for our benefit. So as we read them, we need to think uh, and reflect. Am I like that? Uh, do I complain to God? Do I fail to see his goodness to me? Or do I doubt his promises? So let's get into the story anyway and see what it teaches us here in Exodus 16. As always, when we come to God's word, it's good to think about the context, isn't it? What's, what's gone before and where does this fit in, the overall story and the, and the, the message of the Bible? And uh, if we look back a bit further, um, we see that the Israelites were in Egypt uh, and they'd become a very large group of people there. Some estimates suggest they were 600,000 of the, of the Israelites when they left Egypt, and that's what the book Exodus is all about, of course. Exodus means coming out, doesn't it? So it tells the story of how they escaped from Egypt, because God had promised them their own land. They were God's chosen people, and right back in uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, you remember God had promised to Abraham that his uh, family would become a great family. He said, look up at the stars, and your, your family will be the same size as the number of stars. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and through your family, blessing will come to all nations. Well, that was a far-reaching promise that the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Chosen One, would come through Abraham's family, through his line, through his descendants. So we can see it was very important that his family be preserved. 
Uh, and so we see God providing for them and bringing them out of Egypt in a miraculous way. And that was through Moses being raised up as a leader. Uh, God said to Pharaoh, who was the, the ruler of Egypt, let my people go. Pharaoh said no. God sent the plagues. Um, and eventually Pharaoh said, okay, you, you can go. And so they've escaped from Egypt. And you remember that miraculous escape through the Red Sea, God parting the waters of the Red Sea so that they could go through. Great news, they've escaped slavery. And now here they are in the desert heading for the promised land. It's going to take them quite a while to get there. They spent about 40 years wandering around in the desert, but they're on the way and they've escaped from slavery. So that's kind of brings us up to date with what we're reading here in chapter 16. And there's two things that I think we can learn uh, primarily from this passage tonight. Okay, very simply. Uh, And the first thing that we see here is grumbling. Okay, grumbling. Let's read verses one to three. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So here we are, day 45 after leaving Egypt, six or seven weeks. They're saying, we want more food, we're hungry. Uh, And the whole community, it says, doesn't it? All these 600,000 people are gathering before Moses and Aaron, coming to them saying, give us more food. We need more food. Uh, So we can see, can't we? They've forgotten already how God has blessed them by getting them out of Egypt so soon before that miraculous escape that we read of. And um, much more recently than that, in the previous chapter, chapter 15, God had provided for them in a miraculous way. We see that he provided water. They'd found water there in, in chapter 15 and 22 onwards, but the water was bitter. They couldn't drink it. So God told Moses to put some wood into the water and miraculously it turned sweet and they they were able to drink it. Another sign that God was caring for them in special ways and providing for them. But like a child who forgets the presents that they've just received for Christmas and is totally focused on the things that they didn't get and the other things that they still want, they've forgotten God's goodness to them. And so we have these three chapters, 15, 16 and 17, This repeating pattern, this loop of moaning and grumbling and moaning and grumbling. But as well as being ungrateful for what God has provided for them so far, they should have had the foresight to see that God's actions were a good indicator that he would keep his promise to lead them to the promised land. Financial advisors say, don't they, the past is not a good indicator of the future. But with God and his promises, it definitely is because it it means that he is credible and we can believe that he will keep his promises. But one of the key things we we need to notice from this chapter is that this grumbling is actually sinful because it's grumbling against uh, God. It's not just grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but it's grumbling against God. We've just read there in verses 2 and 3, haven't we, of what happened. Look down at verse 8. Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. 
So we need to ask ourselves, do we grumble against God? I'm sure you'd say, no, of course not. You know, I wouldn't do that. But we're quite good at grumbling, aren't we? Particularly in this country, you grumble about the weather. That's kind of a national pastime. Uh, And we've learnt, well, over the last couple of years, lots of new things to grumble about, haven't we? All the restrictions that we've been living under. You know, why should we have to wear masks, particularly in church? You know, what, what jurisdiction have the government got here? Or perhaps we grumble that life isn't quite quite what we'd like, or not as good as that person over there, or perhaps we'd like to earn more money, or perhaps things in church aren't done quite the way we'd like them. Uh, or perhaps the problem is with everybody else, you know, other people keep offending me and upsetting me. And you say, well, that's not grumbling against God, you know, that's grumbling about other things. But uh, I want us to see that actually this passage says different, and it puts a different light on it. Because we believe, don't we, that God is sovereign. You know, for those of us who are trusting in him, the Bible tells us that he has a plan for our lives in his providence. Verses like Romans 8.28 tell us that. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That's a great verse, isn't it? So reassuring to know that our times are in God's hands and everything that happens to us is part of his plan. But it has a flip side too. It means that grumbling about any of those those things that we've been talking about is grumbling against God because those are things that he's given us uh, or ordained for us as part of his plan for our lives. So we should take note. We should take note of that. But let's think further about how how does the Israelites' behavior and this grumbling, how do we apply it to us today? We're not in the desert. You know, we're here in the New Testament church. How can we apply it to ourselves? And for that, it's worth asking a question. What do you think of the Israelites saying that they were better off in Egypt? You know, when they they say that in those first few verses of chapter 16. Or what do you think of them about being grumbly in the desert? Well, if you're anything like me, you think, you know, how can they have such short memories of what their time was like in Egypt? They were slaves there. They were treated very harshly by the Egyptians and, uh, you know, how could they forget that so quickly? And the same here, you know, they're in the desert now. Of course it's going to be hard. What do they expect? Uh, they're on the journey, and it, they should expect that part of things to be tough. God didn't promise an easy journey. He just promised them a wonderful destination. Well, exactly the same applies to us. We forget, don't we, what we've been saved from. We forget what slavery to sin was like for those of us who've been saved and trusted in the Lord Jesus. And we forget the death that it results in, what we're all heading for naturally. We can sometimes look at unbelievers, we can look at non-Christians and say, why is their life so easy? You know, Why have they got none of the struggles that we believers have? Uh, but we need to remember that we're on a journey, don't we? That when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive our sins, we are much better off than previously. We're on a journey to our own promised land, to heaven, to eternity spent with God in his presence. But although that's a a wonderful destination, for us too, God didn't promise that the journey would be easy. We've just sung about that, haven't we? How um, uh, the verse of the hymn says, When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Those words mean that these things are sent for our benefit, to refine us, to make us more like the Lord Jesus and help us to trust in him more. 
by going through difficulties. So let's not grumble. Let's remember that it's God leading us and teaching us to depend on him, just as he did the Israelites. But you might say, well, does that mean we've always got to be cheerful then? (laughs) You know, isn't there a place for expressing how difficult we're finding life? Because things can be genuinely difficult, can't they? It doesn't mean that life is a bed of roses as a Christian. Does this mean uh, that we have to sweep our troubles under the carpet and kind of put on a fake cheerfulness? Well, surely the answer is no. Of course it's no. We're encouraged to bring to God and to one another the difficulties that we have. And God's word is full of examples of his people doing that. Think of the Psalms. Uh, people, uh, His people pouring out their hearts to God in lament. And there's a whole book, isn't there, called Lamentations. So that's the difference. Lamenting is different between to grumbling. And it's different from an attitude that kind of makes out that the journey isn't worth it. You know, it's worth thinking that sometimes our, if our overriding demeanor is one that's, um, that implies that the journey is not worth it, if we're always under the weather, if we uh, come across as hard done by, um, you know, or focusing on our troubles all the time, the danger is that that, that suggests that this destination, the journey is not worth uh, going through, uh, and that is grumbling against God. So let's be careful about that, and let's remind ourselves of God's goodness to us in our miraculous escape, not from Egypt, but from slavery to sin. And let's be cheerful and not grumbling, because he has promised us a great destination that will surely surpass our imagination. So that's the first thing, okay? Grumbling, that's what we see here in chapter 16 of Exodus. How did God react? How did God react to the grumbling? Did he say, well, I'm done with these Israelites, you know, I'm going to choose a new chosen people, I'm going to move on. Well, no, he didn't. He showed grace. He showed grace, and that's our second point. Let's look in uh, verses 11 onwards, chapter 16 and verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. So we see here God providing, don't we? God's grace shown to them. What is grace? Well, it's God giving us something that we don't deserve. And here we see that he provided food for them. Uh, Every morning they went out and they found this this white sort of crispy stuff on the ground. And they said to each other, what is this? You know, you can imagine them saying to each other, one of them says, what is this? Somebody else says, what is this? Of course, they didn't speak English, so the word they used was manna, which means what is this or what is it in Hebrew. And uh, we can read in verse 35, it tells us that they... They ate this food for 40 years, the whole time that they were in the desert, wandering around before they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. God provided this manna every day. So we see the grace of God shown to them. They didn't deserve God's kindness. And it's it's remarkable. He says, I've heard their grumbling, and my response is to give them food. It's important, I think, at this point to be uh, mindful that God's 
not careless about sin, you know, um, that by providing for them, he's not uh, uh, ignoring their sin. Uh, and that includes the sin of their grumbling. You know, he's patient. Rather, he is patient and ready to forgive and to give what they don't deserve. But it's worth noting, isn't it, that he doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. And actually, if we read on in the story of the Israelites, eventually this grumbling turns into disobedience, uh, repeated disobedience. And they push things even beyond God's patience. And it meant that a whole group of the Israelites didn't actually make it into the promised land because they kept on disobeying God. Uh, So that, again, is a a sobering reminder for us that we don't want to be uh, repeatedly disobeying or refusing God uh, even after we are saved. But back to the Israelites and and the manna, they must have felt pretty odd. Just imagine what, what they felt like. They must have felt pretty odd, mustn't they, eating this unique food. I guess they would have got used to it after 40 years of it, but uh, initially, imagine those first few mornings finding this stuff on the ground and uh, and eating it, and it filling them up, and it sustaining them all that time. And uh, that, I guess, is kind of the point, you know, that this was clearly miraculous. It was clearly God providing for them. Uh, another reminder that they were God's special people and that he was going to fulfill his promise. As we've seen, we we... We see that in chapter 15, God providing for them in a special way, showing to them that they are his special people by providing water, sweet water for them to drink. Look in chapter 17, we see a very similar story where God provides water from a rock. Again, they're they're thirsty, they're searching for water. God tells Moses to strike the rock with the staff that he gave him. That's a symbol of that it's God's power that, that makes the water come out in this Gushing water comes out of the rock, enough to feed all the Israelites. Another miracle that reminds them of God's goodness and his grace to them and his special care for them. But why, in this case, why was the manna provided every day? Maybe you've thought about that before. Why did they have strict instructions to not gather more than one day at a time except on the Sabbath? Well, surely it was to teach them daily dependence on God, daily reliance on him. And it says, doesn't it, in in chapter 16, verse 4, God was using it as a bit of a test to uh, see if they would obey him, obey his instructions and rely on him. And we see that some indeed didn't. They gathered too much manna. It went off the next day and they had to go through that process, that learning process of depending on God day by day. I'm sure you've been to uh, France on holiday at some point or for for other reasons, maybe. And um, I don't know what it is about French bread in France, but it somehow tastes better than the the French bread that you buy here. Maybe it's just the fact that you're on holiday when you're eating it, that it tastes better. But I wonder, too, if they if it's something to do with putting less preservatives in it or something like that. But it seems to go hard more quickly than other kinds of bread that you buy. And so the French have this custom, don't they? The shops open very early. You can go and buy bread, and they they go and buy bread every day. Uh, That's the the normal practice in France. And so you walk into the shop at 7 in the morning, and uh, you have this lovely smell of of fresh bread, and you can buy warm warm baguettes, and it's delicious. Uh, The only drawback is you have to get up early in the morning and go to the shop to buy it when you're on holiday. But but this uh, is what the... uh, uh, Israelites were experiencing, you know, they're having this fresh food provided by God every day. 
And uh, that's the lesson you know, that we need to take from this passage. If there's just one thing that we remember uh, from this message this evening, it's this, that we all need to cultivate daily reliance, daily dependence on God. Uh, because in a similar way to how bread goes hard and loses its freshness if we leave it, our experience of God's goodness goes stale, doesn't it? It loses its effectiveness over time and we're forgetful. So we need to feed daily on his word to learn of him, to be equipped by him and to love him more. And in the same way that our bodies only work by regular eating, it's an obvious thing to say, we can't eat a week's worth of food and then not be hungry, can we? Uh, in the same way, we need a regular intake of God's word and we need to feed on him. When we're saved, God doesn't say, OK, I'll see you in a few years time. You know, um, he knows that we won't survive by doing that. But it's not just I think this the need for daily dependence on God is not just a matter of survival. Uh, there's more to it than that. So consider this example. Many families have had to deal with. Uh, having a child who's tested positive for COVID. Maybe we've all been in that uh, situation. Some of us are dealing with it now, as we just prayed about. And uh, probably the most effective way uh, to prevent uh, the COVID spreading is to uh, isolate the child in their own room. And I know some families have done this. Maybe, uh, maybe you have to leave food outside the door to have separate bathrooms, basically minimize all the interaction with the rest of the family to prevent it spreading. And now it's possible to sustain life like that, isn't it? As an emergency action for 10 days, it's possible to get through it. But hopefully you'd agree that that's not a viable uh, long-term arrangement for a healthy family life. Because, of course, you need interaction, don't you, for family life to be healthy. You need relationship. And uh, it's just the same with us and God. You know, with this daily dependence, God wants a relationship with us. That's why in Matthew 6, Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day, our daily bread. It, it's not give us this month. You know, God could provide for us, couldn't he, if, if we prayed like that? He could provide for us in response to no prayer at all. But that wouldn't be a father and child relationship. So God wants more than just servants that he keeps going so that they can serve him. He wants children. Uh, and so he wants us to daily express our dependence on him. But we've got a problem, haven't we? One thing that hinders, hinders us doing that is that we live in, in plenty, don't we? We've all got so much and we don't feel our need. It's very easy to feel self-sufficient. When we start to feel that way, either in life in general or as a church, you know, when we see things going well, the church growing perhaps, uh, we start to feel self-sufficient, and that's when uh, alarm bells should start ringing. Uh, and if we look around us, you know, the last couple of years should have taught us that uh, life is uncertain, isn't it? Things are unreliable, and we are certainly not in control of everything. So we need to express to God our need for him to give us daily health, for protection, for food. Do you thank God for things? Do you thank him for giving you a job and for... Keep, uh, praying for it to keep going. We're all familiar, aren't we, with giving thanks before uh, having food. Well, perhaps we can use that time to think of other things that God has given us that day and to thank him for those. Well, as we draw to a close, let's think further. How does what happened to the Israelites here apply to us 
today in receiving God's grace? How can we apply that to ourselves? And it's helpful on that front to think, how does this point us to Jesus? Well, why should the Israelites have been confident that God would provide what was needed to get them to the promised land? Why should they be confident in him to do that? Well, very simply, the best reason is because he promised to get them there. As we saw earlier, uh, God had given that promise to Abraham. He'd given the covenant to Abraham that uh, his family would be a special people, that they would have their own land. Uh, And the Israelites were Abraham's descendants. They were in Abraham, as we might say. And that's a picture of what's happened for us if we're believers. You know, if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in Christ. That's what God's word says. And uh, we know that God has promised his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to give him a people. He's covenanted with his son that his people will be with him in glory. As we read there in John 6, John 6 and verse 39 And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that the Father has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So if we're in Christ, the covenant means that God will provide whatever we need uh, to get us there, to get us to our destination. And that's what we mean, isn't it, by God's sovereign purpose, that those who are the chosen ones, those who are the elect, will make it to the promised land. If they didn't, it would mean that his sovereign purpose would be broken, but it can't be broken. And we know that from his word, but we also know that in other ways. When someone makes a promise, you form an opinion, don't you, of how likely the promise is to be fulfilled based on uh, the credibility of the person making the promise. You have an opinion of that. It's based on what we know of their character and past behavior. And in this case, it's Almighty God making the promise, the one who created all things, who here we see providing for the Israelites in miraculous ways, who we see keeping his promises throughout the Bible and sustaining his people through history. So we can be confident in God, and it makes no sense to doubt that he will fulfill his promise, even though it might be hard for us along the way. As well as relying on history and a promise for the future, God has given us help on our journey. In the case of the Israelites, they had the Passover lamb, didn't they? The Passover lamb died in their place. That was a big sign that God was for them, that he was their rescuer. In the same way, our Passover lamb has been given for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. So we can be confident that God will provide. So we see here God supplied the Israelites with bread from heaven and Jesus is our bread from heaven. We read about that in again in John chapter 6. Verse 32 says, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So if we have him, and we're trusting in him, the Lord Jesus Christ. We may find the journey difficult and painful, but we can be confident of this, that God has given us enough to get us to the the end of the journey. He's given us enough to rejoice in the Lord, and he's given us enough to resist sin, including the sin of grumbling.